This is Connected to Chicago, a look at the top stories of the week with the people making, covering, and talking about the news of the day. Now, Connected to Chicago. And welcome to Connected to Chicago. On Monday, the city of Chicago, the state, and Cook County will all drop the indoor mask mandate. Although masks won't entirely go away, with face coverings still required in schools, medical facilities, and public transportation. And with that, we welcome in Chicago's chief medical director, Dr. Jennifer Saw. Thanks for jumping on with us today, doctor. Thanks for having me. Well, so let's start with this. What are the current metrics in the city? Where are we at so far? We are doing really well. You know, we had a really, really hard December and January with the Omicron surge, but we are doing so well right now. So currently we are at about 268 new daily cases of COVID-19. You know, if we get down to less than 200, we'll be out of that substantial transmission range. Our hospitalizations have been going down beautifully as well, and I am sure that our healthcare partners are thankful for that. So currently at about 17 new daily hospitalizations, of course, we'd like that to be even lower and potentially zero. But compared to where we were at the peak of this Omicron surge, where we were seeing over 200 new hospitalizations a day, 17, we will take it. And we still have some room to go, but we're doing really well. In terms of the beds in our hospitals that are being occupied by COVID patients, again, we're in that lower transmission range now. Um, And so doing really well overall. Our deaths are down to about four a day. Again, we want that number to be zero, but compared to earlier in the Omicron surge where we were seeing 30 people dying every day of COVID, we've improved a lot. So doing really well. We're at a good place. The weather is getting warmer. So that's why we felt confident and felt like our city was ready to get rid of those legal mandates for masking indoors. Yeah, not as many people, I guess, cramped inside when the warmer weather hits, more folks are getting out. So what were the metrics that we had to meet in order to lose the mask? Kind of explain what the, the thinking was. I, I, I think I keep remembering that Dr. Arwadi was saying we had to hit three out of four metrics. Does that sound right? That is correct. So throughout this entire pandemic, we've been looking at what we call our community transmission and risk matrix. It includes metrics like cases and positivity, which, of course, people have been following closely with us over the last two years. But we have also been looking throughout all this time at the hospital system capacity. That is what is so important here. Our healthcare partners are here to treat people, to treat people who are sick, to make sure that they don't get any sicker. But if we start stressing that hospital system, that's when we're in big trouble. So looking at cases, positivity, the number of non-ICU hospital beds occupied by COVID patients, and the number of ICU beds occupied by COVID patients. Those are the four metrics that we've been looking at. And we wanted three out of those four to be in the lower transmission range um, before we felt ready to lift those legal mandates to mask indoors or to have to be vaccinated if you're going to one of our higher risk indoor settings like a restaurant or a gym. And so we're there. Um, We've been there for positivity for some time. Our test positivity has been quite low. Our hospital beds, ICU bed occupancy by COVID patients. uh, We hit that mark uh, earlier this week in terms of that seven-day rolling average, which actually means that for the prior week on average, we were in lower transmission. 
and we still have a few days to go um, before that February 28th date, and so we've stayed in that lower transmission range, which we've been so happy for. The one metric that hasn't hit that lower transmission range yet are the daily cases. But as I mentioned, we're, we're almost there. Um, we're just over 200 now. If we get under 200 new daily COVID cases, we'll be in lower transmission or um, even lower for test positivity for all of our four metrics on this community transmission and risk matrix. So very pleased. This is, of course, thanks to all that our city has been doing in terms of doing all those preventive measures, um, being patient, doing what's right to protect yourself and others around you. And you mentioned, you know, uh, that the healthcare system, the hospitals, the number of uh, available beds, that kind of thing. It's my understanding that the CDC is expected to come out. Uh, we're recording this on a Friday. They're expecting to come out and tell city leaders across the nation to move away so much from uh, those daily case counts and to focus more on how their healthcare system is handling those cases at a local level. So going forward, does it sound like it'll kind of be around the, you know, revolve around those ICU availability, what kind of bed space we have as far as maybe the main metric going forward? That's right. And it's because we're in the age of vaccination. We've had the vaccine around for more than a year now. Um, and we know that the vaccine is particularly good at preventing those severe outcomes from COVID-19. So I'm talking about hospitalizations and deaths. And so there's been a recognition nationwide, and we are eagerly awaiting CDC's new metrics, but a recognition that, yes, we should be looking at the cases, but what's also very, very important is to look at how our hospital system is doing, because that is an indication to us in terms of what has been the impact of severe COVID outcomes for our Chicago residents. So a little bit more focus on those severe outcomes, the hospitalizations and the deaths, in addition to keeping an eye on the cases, but a recognition that with vaccinations, folks may get infected, but it might not be as severe. Um, and so really happy and pleased to see that CDC will be moving forward with shifting um, and, and coming up with new metrics for us to guide our public health decisions moving forward. This pandemic has, of course, kept all of us on our toes. Um, and it's important that we're able to adapt and flex as we get new data and learn more about the COVID-19 pandemic and the virus and being able to adopt and flex is something that may come up again as perhaps there may be other strains that could pop up from time to time i kind of think of it not so much as in symptoms as it being like the flu but in the case of you have different strains that may come up every year and you develop a vaccine for those different strains have you heard are there any other strains that are popping up out there that are on the horizon that we should know about so, you know, one sub-variant of the Omicron variant that's been getting some attention is that BA2 variant. We're keeping a close eye on that. Right now, we don't have a lot of BA2 activity here in the country. That's estimated that for last week, um, around 4% or so of the infections may have been BA2. Here in our Midwest region, uh, it's even lower, about 2.5%. So something we're keeping a close eye on. There is a concern that the BA2 variant may be more transmissible, so easier for it to go from one person to another. We're still waiting to get more data. It doesn't seem like right now that there are signals that it's going to be more severe, meaning that more people will be hospitalized or die from it. Um, but we know that in other countries that that BA2 variant has either caused a big spike in cases or has prolonged the cases from coming down. 
but we're doing okay here, something we're closely monitoring. And, you know, variants happen. That is what viruses do. As you mentioned, the flu virus, viruses mutate. Um, and what we worry about is if a mutation causes more severe illness or causes a lot of people to get infected, or if it escapes immunity, meaning, you know, immunity from the vaccine, or if you've already been infected, immunity that you may have gotten from that. So we're closely monitoring all that, including here very locally in Chicago with our public health laboratory um, in terms of doing some genomic sequencing to see if new variants are popping up. But this is why, you know, it's a reminder, we're not completely out of this pandemic yet. We still need to be mindful, take into account our individual risk as we go out and do our activities and start enjoying hopefully the warmer weather with the spring coming. Um, but really to, to be careful and if you know, folks haven't been vaccinated yet, very important to get vaccinated so that we don't have more infections because you know, the more people that the virus is able to infect, the more opportunity for it to mutate and create new variants. So very important to get vaccinated. And we know that the vaccinations have helped during this Omicron surge, importantly, the booster doses. So more to come there. Um, we will see what will happen in the fall if we may need further doses of the vaccine. That's something that we're very closely following. So when it comes to those boosters, there is a recommendation out now for a fourth booster. Is that, is that right? What, who, who is that targeted towards? So that fourth dose is, is just for those who are immunocompromised. Right now, for the general population, there is, you should get your booster dose, but there's not a recommendation at this time for another booster. Okay. Uh, like I mentioned, we may want people to get boosters again in the fall or in the summer, you know, depending on what happens with new variants or what's happening with the pandemic and our metrics. Um, but it's for those immunocompromised individuals. They've been recommended to get a third dose, um, and then they should also get a booster dose. So for immunocompromised individuals, they may end up getting four doses. But for the general population, still the recommendation right now is for those who are eligible for a booster, so those are our Chicago residents 12 and older, you should get your booster dose, but no recommendation at this time to get a second booster. So, I mean, would there, do, you, do you see down the road that uh, we could maybe get a yearly uh, shot or something like that, kind of like the flu? It's possible. So I think it's something that our residents should be ready for and ready for us to uh, potentially recommend this or their healthcare providers. Because like I said, uh, it could act like the flu where we continue, you know, it'll stay around and we'll have to live with it. Um, and it'll create different variants and, and different mutations that will require us to develop vaccines that are more targeted to what is out uh, in terms of the strains of the coronavirus. So it's possible. Um, don't know for sure yet, but, but it is possible, especially given what we've seen over the last year. We're talking with Dr. Jennifer Saw, the chief medical director for the city of Chicago. Um, when we talk about vaccines, um, are the vaccines that are out now, are they tailored just towards the, that first strain, the, the initial strain, or can they be targeted towards like the, the Delta variant? Have they been working on anything like that, do you know? Yes, some of the vaccine producers have been working on, for example, an Omicron-specific vaccine, something that will very specifically target some of those mutated aspects of the virus. So the current vaccine that we have now wasn't targeted towards, you know, for example, it wasn't targeted towards the Delta variant, wasn't targeted towards the Omicron variant, but with this last Omicron surge 
and what we saw the virus capable of doing. Our vaccine manufacturers, our scientists out there, they've been working to see if they can develop a vaccine that very specifically targets a particular strain. And it may very well be that we see something like that, kind of like you mentioned, again, the flu vaccine happening um, on an annual basis or later this year. So lots of great work being done during uh, with our scientists, our scientific community. Uh, it's been, I think, one of the inspiring things of this pandemic, how how quickly everyone has rallied together to get that data, to make new developments, to make new technologies, to protect all of us. And I guess that kind of falls into my next question is, uh, you know, kind of what have scientists and doctors learned during this pandemic? What what have, what has your office learned from from all of this? Well, it's it's certainly been a humbling couple of years. The pandemic sure. has kept us on our toes. Uh, a lot of changing things happening, the virus changing, new data coming in. So so humbling. But I think what's been so important is the importance of communication, making sure that our Chicago residents have accurate data in a way that is understandable. So when we do put out things like vaccine mandates or masking mandates, it's understandable as to why we're doing it to protect our city. And I'm very grateful that we're having this conversation, too, to get the word out. But I think that communication piece, we we learned that we have to do it well and we have to do it often. I mean, we have to take feedback from our community on their thoughts of what's happening. I think what we've also learned, and we um, always knew this, and it's kind of the way medical doctors approach our practice, right? It's not just about numbers and data. Um, This whole pandemic, this whole situation is about humans and human beings too, and how they've been affected by the virus, whether directly from infection or from not having been able to go out and meet friends and other things. So um, just really, I think, a reminder of, of humanity and also that we're connected. I mean, very specifically from a science standpoint in terms of being able to transmit the virus to one another um, and the importance of not only thinking about protecting ourselves, but protecting those around us and thinking about our community, um, but also just the, the connectedness in, in terms of how we, we all move through this pandemic together and how we kind of um, work together to get ourselves out of this situation. Um, but I, again, what I mentioned was so inspiring is that we rallied. And I think uh, we have always been partnering with, for example, our healthcare providers out there, our community-based organizations. But I think what's been so inspiring during this pandemic is everyone rallied together. We, we have been having many conversations with each other, giving each other honest feedback, trying to improve acknowledging when things haven't gone 100% right, but also working together to think through solutions. And I think the other thing that this pandemic has really, really highlighted is, again, the inequities in our city in terms of access to health care, health outcomes, access to other things like being able to get food during a pandemic. Um, These are issues that people have been dealing with before the pandemic. So, even more motivation for our health department and our city to work towards what we can do to make each community as healthy and uh, to increase vitality in all of our communities and to really work on that piece of making sure everyone has access to healthcare that they trust um, and that is dependable. So a very humbling but also inspiring couple of years here and we're continuing to learn and continuing to improve and just really appreciate conversations like this and appreciate our city for sticking with us and for helping us move through as well. And for those that are on the fence and 
I think uh, the advice would be to get the vaccine. The city is still offering um, vaccinations, right? I mean, it's it's relatively easy for somebody to get one if they want one. Absolutely. Widely available. Uh, you can go to a healthcare provider. You can go to a pharmacy. Um, if you're not sure where to get vaccinated, you can give us a call. Our call center is ready to help. 312-746-4835. So, yes, we recommend everyone to get vaccinated and if you're eligible to get boosted as well. And if you're not sure about it, to have that conversation with a healthcare provider and someone who can also get to know you in terms of where you're coming from, your health history and all of that. Um, and if you don't have a health care provider, we really are encouraging people to continue getting care, to get back into care if you stopped going to a health care provider during this pandemic. And if you've never had a health care provider, to take this opportunity to get one. And again, if you don't have a health care provider, we're happy to help you with that as well. You can call our call center 312-746-4835 and we'd be happy to connect you with a community health center so that you can take care of yourself. We want everyone to take care of themselves now, um, especially as we're trying to move forward out of this pandemic. So Again, yes, vaccination is the number one way to protect yourself and those around you. But have those conversations. Get the information you need to make that decision for yourself. Final question for you, and it's going to be a tough one. I know you don't have a crystal ball, but is there a chance we could go backwards? If uh, we see another uh, uh, surge, um, is there a chance that, that we could go back, or is there optimism in the community, uh, in the medical field, that maybe we're over the worst of it. I am an optimist. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we're enough. moving forward. But we have to be real. Yes, I think the Omer concert showed us what this virus can do. We could absolutely encounter another variant um, that escapes our immunity that we have. But what I feel optimistic about, even knowing that that is a possibility, is we are now over two years into this pandemic. We have learned a lot of things. We have built infrastructure, we have built partnerships, and we're continuing to learn and improve. So it's not like we're back in 2020. We know what to do. Uh, we know how to surge up. We know how to work with each other to get the resources when our cases are increasing, when hospitalizations are increasing. And so, again, we have the tools. We, ma we have our masks. We have vaccinations. We have scientists who are working hard to improve on vaccinations. We have COVID treatments. I think that's an important thing that everyone should realize, too. There are pills that you can take to prevent you from being hospitalized or from dying. There are also IV treatments, those monoclonal antibodies. So we have a lot of tools under our belt, and we know what to do. Um, and so, yes, it's possible that we could go backwards in terms of our metrics and our numbers, but we have the tools to fight them, and we're, we are ready to pull them out again if we need to. Fairly optimistic. Okay, I like that. Uh, thank you so much. That's Chicago's Chief Medical D Director, Dr. Jennifer Saw. Thanks for being on the program today. Thank you so much. Be well. Coming up, the Reporter Roundtable. You're listening to Connected to Chicago on WLS. This is Connected to Chicago. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com. And it's time for the Reporter Roundtable, where we welcome in Lynn Sweet, Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief for the Chicago Sun-Times, Heather Sharon of WTTW's Chicago Tonight, Greg Hines of Crane Chicago Business, and Ray Long of the Chicago Tribune. And, folks, it looks like uh, President Biden has uh, made his pick. 
uh, a nominee for the position in the Supreme Court being vacated by Justice Stephen Breyer, who is retiring at uh, the end of this particular session. Uh, Greg, uh, was this much of a surprise? No, it, uh, it, Biden had indicated that he was going to pick a black woman, and it had pretty been, well been reported by uh, Lynn Sweet and others that he was down to three people that he'd interviewed. And he picked the one who was, in a political sense, is probably the safest since she's been confirmed previously uh, by the Senate twice before, uh, first for a district court, then for an appellate court. Um, you know, the hope is that uh, she's going to get some Republican votes. There were three votes uh, for our belief uh, uh, when she was up uh, for the Court of Appeals. Uh, that's probably not in the cards this time already. Lindsey Graham, who's one of those, uh, who's one of those three, is out saying that the radical left is one of the nominee. But uh, uh, this woman has known she has a clear record. There hasn't been anything that came up that was able to scuttle her her previous appointments. So uh, I think the president's feeling is this is a reasonably safe pick. Although it will probably pass uh, on either a, only with Democrats or with one or two Republicans at most. Lynn, what's uh, what what is her background? Uh, Katanji Brown Jackson. Well, she is a Harvard Law School graduate. She is Harvard Law School undergraduate. And what's interesting in this case, an app, uh, she clerked for Stephen Breyer, the justice who she will be replacing if confirmed. She was appointed. She was nominated for a seat on the federal bench by former President Barack Obama, who also before that tapped her to be on the U.S. Sentencing Commission. Uh, she was approved on a voice vote for that U.S. District Court position then in June of 2021 when her appellate seat came up. Uh, she was approved on a 53-44 roll call, and as Greg noted, uh, Graham, Senator Lindsey Graham, Lisa Murkowski, and Susan Collins were the only three Republicans who voted for her. If you take away um, Graham, and if you assume no more Republicans vote for her, and I'm not conceding that's the case for the moment, uh, she still will uh, be confirmed. And uh, the reason I don't think there'll be a brutal battle is that ideologically it won't shift the tilt of the court. I think the other thing is that uh, Brown, uh, or uh, Lindsey Graham, rather, had his uh, own backyard. He was looking for somebody out of his own backyard, too, that uh, would have been a, a choice for him. Um, and that, uh, I think... Uh, is one reason he may have come out so quickly today uh, against a, a candidate other than the one he wanted. And so uh, it also uh, means that it's another person out of Harvard, and that's uh, one of the points that he was making earlier uh, Friday, uh, that uh, you know this keeps the Harvard train going, and his candidate was a graduate of public schools. So uh, that's just one more Thing that he can throw into the uh, mix to try to, uh, you know, stop up the the wheels from turning. But it looks like there should be a, a clear path here, even if they end up with a tie. Kamala Harris would be there to break. Okay, we can pivot now to um, Ukraine if uh, you guys want to do that. We are recording this on a Friday, so anything could happen uh, as far as Ukraine is concerned. But um, I guess there are there are some concerns um, when it comes to um, Senator Dick Durbin and others, uh, maybe that um, how far will Putin go? Poland could be next. What's the latest that you're hearing uh, there, Lynn, as far as uh, Ukraine and um, 
these uh, tougher sanctions that the president says is uh, maybe going to stall Putin's uh, role. Well, the sanctions that have been imposed by our by uh, Biden with some parallel sanctions by our other uh, allies won't kick in immediately. So they won't change anything today or tomorrow. Uh, it's a little more of a long term, which means that it leaves uh, Biden open to criticism for not having other, I guess, uh, other sanction ammunition planned that could maybe change what's happening on the ground. And once something happens on the ground, it's harder to reverse than to prevent it from happening in the first place. So, uh, you know, that, that's where we're at right now. There's certainly a lot of local reaction. Heather, what are you guys hearing? Um, you know, I think this is the second largest Ukrainian population in the United States is here in Chicago. That's right. And um, many Ukrainians in Chicago live on the northwest side. And we saw many people um, head to the Harlem Avenue overpass over the Kennedy um, soon after um, war broke out, um, or soon after, I should say, Russia invaded Ukraine, um, waving flags and, and demonstrating for their um um, homeland. And it, it was a really moving um, sign of solidarity. There was also a, a big uh, a protest and, and gathering in Ukrainian village um, on the northwest side. And, you know, it, I think that everybody in Chicago, because of the city's big Ukrainian population, is a little bit closer to Ukraine today than we were three days ago. And it's got to be so difficult for people in Chicago hoping to get information about their family and ho hoping everybody's safe, um, especially given sort of what we saw Friday morning with, you know, reports of, of, of Keys itself being under attack by, by Russian missiles. Um, and, of course, the really the, just the incredible story of the 13 Ukrainian soldiers who were killed while defending a Ukrainian outpost in the Black Sea. Um, a, a Russian warship approach told them to surrender. Uh, they refused in memorably salty language, and all 13 were killed. And, you know, of course, we're in the very early hours of this conflict. So it's impossible to know what will stay with us. Um, but that, um, I think, has really captured the imagination uh, of many people sort of watching in horror as, a full-blown land war returns to the European continent uh, nearly 80 years after World War II ended. Yeah, I think Heather is right about this. Uh, this, the, the, uh, this invasion particularly resonates with uh, with Chicago's enormous uh, Ukrainian population. It may be the largest in the country, uh, but it ought to resonate, frankly, with all of us because if, <clears throat> if you look at the context of what uh, Russian leader Putin has said, he's indicated this is just phase one. Uh, he's, uh, he essentially said that the that anybody, uh, I want NATO out, and I want to have old, absolutely influence, total influence over any country that used to be in his sphere of influence. Um, that that includes uh, Romania, that includes Poland, that includes a big chunk of Germany, for heaven's sake. Um, because don't forget, the East Germany was a, a Russian satellite uh, country, uh, uh, government for a while. Um, and he said that anybody who resists his efforts to do this uh, will suffer unimaginable con uh, consequences, unlike anything seen in, 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 in history. Uh, in other words, a lot of people interpret that as a nuclear threat. Uh, I'll use nuclear bombs if you don't give me control out of Eastern Europe. Uh, that has a, 
implications for our way of order, uh, what's, uh, how this, uh, the world has been run since World War II. It affects, it's going to affect our economy. It's going to affect our energy situation. Um, and uh, this is, I fear, uh, and this is what I think Senator Durbin and others have said pretty clearly, this is only act one in a drama that could get very serious very quickly. We're sending lots of troops now over to uh, to Eastern Europe, to NATO countries that uh, uh, we have a treaty obligation to defend, unlike Ukraine. <clears throat> but if something like this were to happen with Poland or Romania uh, or the Baltic states, we potentially could be in a world war. I keep hearing some people uh, liken this to what happened in 2014 uh, with Crimea, the Crimean Peninsula. It, I, I think this is much different, though. Lynn, is it apples and oranges, or is it the same thing? Well, it's all, it's all part of the same story of President Putin trying to take back Ukraine piece by piece. There was more of an element of surprise in Crimea. Here there wasn't. One of the things that President Biden did was to declassify United States intelligence and talk about for weeks now about Russian troops massing on the borders of Ukraine. So in this case, there was no element of surprise. Now, having said that, it didn't change the outcome. The president predicted that Putin was going to invade, and he did. So that is what is different in this case. Yeah, Nick, I think there's a couple other differences, too. Um, uh, Lynn is right that there's an element of surprise. Uh, in Crimea, nobody put up a fight. I mean, essentially, the Russians walked in. Uh, whatever uh, Ukrainian soldiers were there walked out, and they took it over. And then they they put together a vote, which they won in, in an area that I believe is is predominantly Russian-speaking. In this case, you're talking about an entire country that it's made it clear he does not want to do this. Um, he didn't just take over the uh, the the, uh, the Donbass region at the east end of uh, Ukraine that uh, he considers to uh, to have to be predominantly Russian and ought to be go back to Russia. He's invaded the entire country, uh, and he wants to take over the entire country, and it would appear install some kind of puppet regime that will do what, do what he wants. That's a couple categories above uh, different uh, uh, it's much closer to, to Western Europe. It's a much larger country. It's 40 million people. I don't know how many people live in the Ukraine, but it's nowhere near 40 million. They live in the Crimea, but it's nowhere near that size. Um, it's just magnitudes of impact higher. Well, it's also just the senselessness of it all. Uh, you know, the whole idea that this is happening in the year 2022 is just remarkable in that for 80 years ago, we wouldn't see the kind of uh, video or uh, instant uh, uh, images that come in uh, and tell about the attack, too. So it's got to resonate uh, in ways that it wouldn't have 80 years ago, even though it was an important and, and terrible invasion then, too. But uh, just the idea that this is happening here is uh, something that uh, we had all hoped would never happen again. That's the point to make, how this is, you know, we live in an age where so much of the warfare is asymmetrical, a terrorist attack, cyber attack, with uh, lone, lone wolves, copycats. Not only was this telegraphed, but this is in a sense a history of, uh, of how world wars start in Europe by tanks rolling over borders. That's why the seriousness of this and the grave situation that the no, world think, is in right now is so enormous. 
I do think we I do think we have to say uh, there's been some writing this week about how uh, Mitt Romney, when he ran against Barack Obama's re-election campaign a few years ago, uh, was kind of ridiculed by by, by uh, Obama when he Romney suggested that Russia was a real threat. Um, the Obama people uh, were in charge, and when uh, Russia walked into uh, and took over uh, the Crimea, we didn't do much about it. And so, to some extent. There's a lot of other things that contribute to it. I mean, Donald Trump, for heaven's sake, made it, uh, did everything but uh, sit in uh, Putin's lap and give a big kiss. Uh, there's a lot of mistakes that we have made that have kind of led the way to what's happening. We've signaled that you can get away with stuff, and when you do that with the wrong person, guess what? They get away with it, or they try to. Well, I guess we'll have to wait and see what happens. And again, recording this Friday, so by the time uh, we talk again, uh, things certainly could have uh, taken a turn. Um, let's move on to uh, Tom Cullerton, who has uh, resigned uh, his uh, state Senate seat, taking a plea deal in a case he's involved in. And I want to ask Heather, it's another, it's another one on the, the list, uh, I guess, of politicians that we keep seeing uh, getting in trouble here in Illinois. It, it sure is. And, you know, Tom Cullerton was one of the few um, indicted Illinois politicians to stay in office and vow to fight it. Um, he was indicted, you know, more than a year ago at this point. It looked like he was going to try to, you know, rebuff the charges that he had essentially been a ghost payroller for the, the Teamsters Union um, and was going to take it all the way to a jury, but then abruptly resigned and, and said that he plans to, to plead guilty. And, um, you know, this comes on the heels of former Alderman Patrick Daly Thompson going to trial on seven charges of lying to federal bank regulators and filing false tax returns. And I know I heard several people suggest that perhaps Tom Cullerton had been um, a little bit, you know, frightened by what happened to the former Alderman. And, and I certainly don't know one way or the other if he did, but it does show you that when, you know, the U.S. Attorney Office brings these charges um, they very rarely go to. They very rarely bring charges in cases where they're not more than 100% confident that they can prove them. And it will be interesting to see what happens in the coming weeks. Um, former state um, senator Louis Arroyo is, is due to be sentenced in April now, as is former alderman Ricardo Munoz. Both of them argued that it didn't make any sense to send them to jail because politicians were going to keep doing crimes, so they should just serve probation and, and call it even. And it'll be interesting to see what what the judges in those cases do, especially since these cases keep coming one right after the other. Is there enough of an impact, though, when, when you take the plea deal without having a, a jury decide or without taking it to, to uh, you know a full-blown trial, and there's a, a message from the public, we're not going to take this anymore. Does that weaken what uh, the message is coming out of, um, you know, the U.S. Attorney's Office? Well, you know, certainly reasonable people can disagree. But in the case, uh, for example, of former Alderman Patrick Daly Thompson, not only was he forced to resign his city council seat, um, giving up the 11th Ward seat that had been held by either a member of the Daly family or a loyalist in the Daly machine, um, dating at least back until the 1960s. Um, but he's also likely to lose his law license. And, of course, he will never again hold elected office. Um, and so those, those consequences are, are not insignificant. Uh, the question is, is, if the court system is not an effective deterrent for wrongdoing, um, what is? And I certainly can't answer that question. Yeah, it's another big black eye in the uh, whole 
or uh, area of public officials, but it's a, a really big black eye for the legislature because he comes uh, in a succession of senators, Cullerton, we had uh, Sandoval, and um, we have had uh, Representative Arroyo, who uh, Heather pointed out earlier, um, and they just keep coming through here. And uh, Terry Link, of course, has uh, pled guilty, another senator, to uh, charges that uh, are related to tax evasion. But uh, a lot of the the documents that lead to these charges show that they were playing around with uh, money that they shouldn't have been playing around with. Uh, Terry Link, for example, was dipping into campaign funds, et cetera. But when they come to plea, uh, they don't always uh, get held accountable for everything. Uh, another person who has uh, pled guilty is uh, uh uh, Eddie Acevedo, who uh, an- takes another uh, tax evasion charge, and he and Arroyo, for example, have not uh, agreed to a, a level of sentence. So I think it will be interesting to watch what the judges do when they come to the point where they have to decide the sentence themselves, and there'll be uh, obviously there'll be people pleading for probation versus uh, uh, prosecutors who will be calling for a tougher sentence to deter, to try to deter this uh, conga line of political players who just keep ending up in federal court. Last couple of minutes that we have left, uh, Pritzker endorses Anna Valencia. Is that a game changer, Greg? Uh, it might be, um, along with the uh, earlier endorsement a few days prior uh, by uh, Jesse White, the retiring Secretary of State. Um, I do think it's fair to say, for, you know, a month ago or a few weeks ago, it looked like Alexi Giannullius, the former state treasurer, was running away with this race. He'd gotten the endorsement of the Cook County Democratic Organization. <clears throat> He'd raised uh, several million dollars. Uh, he had a bunch of big unions in his camp. Uh, but I give the Valencia people credit. They stuck with it, and uh, they kept pushing it, and uh, they finally got Jesse White to endorse, which cleared the way for Prisker to endorse. Uh, if Prisker follows this up with money, which is the one thing that she's lacking right now, uh, either himself or some of his buddies, uh, and bust the caps, uh, the financial difference between the two of them, uh, between her and Gene Hill, could disappear in a hurry. In a hurry. So, you know, I, does this mean she's going to win? No. But is she back in, the, in into the race in a way she wasn't uh, a couple of weeks ago? Yeah, I think so. Lynn, uh, do we... Oh, please go on. I was just going to ask, um, is Alexi Janulius going to ask his old basketball buddy to endorse him, back him in this race? Or has that, has the president... I cannot imagine any scenario where Barack Obama will endorse this race. Okay. Um, zip, okay, and the reason why is there's nothing in it uh, to, for former President Obama, and there's no reason. He doesn't owe Alexi anything one way or the other. I, I know that they have been together know each other, but there, you know, so, so I, I, I understand okay. why you brought it up. But the power of Pritzker and Jesse White and Senator Durbin and Tammy Duckworth sends a strong message to other donors. So it's not even just Pritzker who is good. No, that can, you know, can in a moment wipe out the financial disadvantage. It also seemed to me as a no-brainer in the end for Pritzker once Jesse came out for Anna Valencia. It's it's just a win-win for him to back a, a person who would be, if elected, 
the first female Secretary of State and the first Latina Secretary of State. Yeah, and that and uh, and uh, Lexi was is viewed in much in many Democratic circles as having a reliability. That's the Broadway bank issue. His family bank uh, about 15 years ago went belly up, got bailed out by taxpayers. It cost us more than three hundred million bucks to take care of that. Uh, that may uh, that certainly was a reason why he lost his U.S. Senate race to Mark Kirk then. Uh, and there was a lot of fear among Democrats that uh, that Republicans who have all this big financial backing from uh, from Ken Griffin would use that to, to, to try to tarnish the entire Democratic ticket. And say, hey, they're all crooked. They're all shysters. Look at this guy and Lexi. And and by the way, the people who ran Mark Kirk's campaign uh, are running. Some of them are running. Uh, Mayor Irvin's campaign, so they already have the opposition research book on Alexei Giannoulis. Interesting. Okay, folks, we're going to have to leave it there. My thanks to Lynn Sweet, Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief for the Chicago Sun-Times, Heather Sharona, WTTW Chicago Tonight, Greg Hines of Crane Chicago Business, and Ray Long of the Chicago Tribune. Up next, Kim Gordon, you're listening to Connected to Chicago on WLS. <laughs> This is Connected to Chicago, a look at the top stories of the week with the people making, covering, and talking about the news of the day. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com. A new University of Illinois study finds disturbingly high levels of lead in soil samples across Chicago. Joining me today is Professor Andrew Marginot at the University of Illinois in the Crop Sciences Department to discuss the study. Professor, welcome to Connected to Chicago. Thank you for having me. So we hear about the connection to lead levels in pipes, but it's also, as you found, in soil, and apparently soil where children play can be just as dangerous as those old pipes. So tell us about the study, what you found, and why you decided to do it in the first place. We know that there's a lead risk issue in Chicago. There's lots of data on blood lead of children by census tract, and it suggests that even though we have achieved marked reductions and how much lead is in kids' blood, there's still amounts, especially in west and south side, that are problematic. So soils are one of the main sources. As you've rightfully pointed out, water from leaded pipes is, is another one. So we wanted to, as a first step, assess across Chicago how much lead is there and where is it. We took a bird's eye view, and so we sampled roughly 2,000 locations across the city every 600 yards or so on a grid pattern. So we have full city coverage, and then we looked at the amount of total lead in the soil. And what we found overall was that there's 11 times higher lead than what should naturally be there. Now, soils naturally have some amounts. The value is called 20 part per million. We found an average of 220 to 240 part per million. So that's about 10 to 11 times higher than normal. What neighborhoods had the highest lead levels, and do you know why? The average across the city is about 10, 11 times higher than what is natural. Now, an important detail here is what constitutes a threat is a, is a different question, and it's kind of under debate. Different agencies, federal to state, don't agree on how much lead in the soil is too much lead. So uh, if you look at what the federal and the Illinois EPA recommend, their threshold is 400 ppm. Again, we're at around 220 on average across Chicago. But some state EPAs like Minnesota or California put it at lower, 80 or 100 ppm respectively. So if you go by the more conservative California EPA threshold, we found that 93% of the city, no matter where you are, 
uh, sorry, that 93% of the city is going to exceed that threshold. But if you go by the federal in the Illinois EPA threshold of 400 ppm, then most of the city is actually below that threshold. There are some hot spots. And in general, as you go away from the loop in a concentric circle, the amount of lead falls off. And we found hotspots that are largely directly to the west of the loop. So thinking around um, Pilsner area and then the southeast shore region also had a hotspot. And those were in excess of the Illinois in the federal EPA threshold. So we're talking above 400 ppm that is more than 20 times higher than natural. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I know this is really important information, especially for parents and people with young children in their lives. So we really appreciate you joining us. Thank you for having me. And that'll do it for this week's Connected to Chicago. My thanks to Matt Mellon for his technical assistance. I'm Nick Gale, 890 WLS News. Connected to Chicago, a production of WLS News. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com.